We have very typical Lenten readings this morning that move us in the direction of lament and repenting. And there is a specific theme to our readings this morning, especially the one from Romans, about the nature of the spiritual warfare that is in our lives between the flesh and the spirit. And so this morning I wanna help you get a new perspective on those things. I always think that perspective is one of the greatest gifts in the world and I love illustrating it by this dopey little joke. Um, so first thing you need to know, the only thing worse than dad jokes, bishop jokes. <laughs> so you've heard these dopey stories, you know, there's four guys in an airplane, this little airplane, but there's only three parachutes, and the plane's about to crash. Have you heard these dopey stories? Okay, here's one. Four guys in this airplane. There's a young pilot who's like 35 years old, he's got four kids at home, there was a guy who was reputed to be like the smartest guy in the world. I don't remember what he did, but he like somehow networked the whole world's banking system or something like that. And there was this really old retired minister and a young boy of about 12. So you know how it goes. The plane starts crashing, four guys, only three parachutes. The young pilot says, hey, it's really important that I live. I got four kids at home. If I die, my wife will kill me. And so he grabs one of the parachutes and he jumps. And the smartest guy in the world says, hey, it's really important that I live too. I'm like the smartest guy in the world. So he grabs one of the parachutes and he jumps. And that just leaves the old reverend and the 12-year-old boy. <clears throat> and the old reverend looks at the boy and says, you know what, son? I've really lived a good life. I really feel like I've done everything God's asked me to do. You take that last parachute and jump. And the young boy looks at him and says, ah, relax, reverend. The smartest guy in the world just jumped out with my backpack. So you see your perspective on things. What you intuitively believe to be the case of things sometimes needs a little perspective. And so this morning, our readings in this Romans passage helps us to see that Christian spirituality actually does mean being engaged with a conflict between the flesh and the spirit. And there's some senses in which none of us need to be told that, right? Certainly I'm aware of this day in and day out. And this is a theme in Paul. For instance, in Galatians 5, he says to those people, walk by the Spirit, and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what's contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit that which is contrary to the flesh. Paul says straightforwardly, they are in conflict with each other. Now, I think it's important to know that the first friends, the first followers of Jesus, were not mean-spirited, legalistic, judgmental kind of people. Rather, when we read these letters, like from Paul, we should know that this is coming from real, personal knowledge. In the same way that you know the roads you took to get here this morning, they knew what they were talking about. They knew that this is how it is <clears throat> in the way of Jesus. They had genuine knowledge of Jesus and the Spirit working in them. And so this isn't mean-spirited, killjoy kind of preachiness when they say things like run, escape, flee. I mean, think of the things the Bible says to us. Flee sexual immorality. Flee idolatry. Flee the love of money and greediness. Flee youthful lusts. See, what the Christian tradition of spirituality knows is that this battle between the flesh and the spirit, as Paul talks about in Romans, is actually engaged on three fronts. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, what is world? The word cosmos can be translated different ways in the Greek New Testament. <clears throat> when we talk about it in these terms, we mean everything that stands against God. 
So all the broken, rebellious, out of alignment things in the world, that's what the world means in this sense. It's all that that rebels against God's purposes. And the devil throughout the New Testament is simply seen as the personal spiritual power that leads these forces of evil to stand against God and to be rebellious against him. And then the flesh, this is one that's always tricky. The flesh does not mean our skin or the kind of fatty tissue below our skin. Flesh in the New Testament does not refer to persons in their material forms. Flesh here is something like the world. It means all the aspects of us as persons, both inwardly and outwardly, that are controlled by sinful desires and passions. Tom Wright commenting on this passage sees a contrast here between what he calls Adam humanity and Messiah humanity. So that in Adam, we have this icon, rebellion and death, flesh in that sense, that which is corrupted and rebellious, and it's therefore mortal, versus the fruit that comes from Messiah humanity, from his obedience and the eternity that comes from that. So again, in a parallel passage in Galatians 5, Paul says, the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, you all know this passage, right? Fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, faction, envy, drunkenness, orgies. It's like, yeah, Paul, thank you, that's pretty comprehensive. <laughs> that's about it. And our text this morning in Romans says, the mind governed by the flesh is death. So again, this is not a comment on the physicality of your gray matter. This is a comment on the current stage or the current state of our affections, of what we really want, of what we really desire, not what we think we're supposed to want or supposed to desire because a parent or a preacher or somebody told us that, but that which is really real about us. And when that's in rebellion, that means it's hostile to God, the text says. It doesn't submit to God's law. Now, again, Torah is not a religious bludgeoning over the head like with a big heavy Bible like was just up here. Torah means something like God's guidance, God's counsel, God's best ideas about what it means to be human in his image. That's what Torah is. It was meant to shape and guide a group of people who could then be God's friends. But Paul says those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. That is to say they stand actually in opposition, whether they know it or not, about what God thinks is best. And so when Wright talks about this Messiah humanity, he means to say this is what life-giving obedience looks like. Like when you see Jesus, you see the fruit of the Spirit, carrying on that thought in Galatians 5. In Jesus we see love and Joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. That's like Messiah humanity. Humanity is God intended. Jesus is Israel as in God intended. He's the fulfillment of Torah and all that God envisioned all the way back to Genesis 12, 3 when he called Abram and said, out of you I'm gonna make a great nation. And then you think of all the ups and downs of Jewish history and then Jesus explodes onto the scene and he then says to everybody, this is what humanity was meant to look like back to the garden. This is humanity as God intended in Israel. 
And this is humanity as God intends for the church. And this is why Paul says those who belong to Jesus Christ, those who are part of his body, they're crucifying the flesh with its passions and desires. Now here's a major practical point of Christian spirituality. Would you like that to be true of you? Would you like to be the sort of person who is crucifying your flesh, your disordered desires, its passions? Like you think of the matrix. If you're given the blue pill, would you take it? Like what if you knew there was a pill this morning that you could take wherein again you would never be manipulatively angry as a way to get what you want from your spouse or as a way to get your way at work? Or what if you could take a pill where you would never again disorderly lust? See, this gets at our true desires and this is what Paul's getting at. Where that's why he says to live by the Spirit and to keep step with the Spirit. Because in Paul's view, I mean, Paul really gets what this is. That's why he says in our passage today, the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life. And again, this is life, this is humanity as God intended. That will be given to your flesh, to your mortal bodies, because of the Spirit who lives in you. Now, to me, an interesting facet of faith for those of us who may feel spiritually dry or my heart breaks virtually every day for formerly de-churched people. I mean, I've always been a bit of an amateur sociologist of religion. I don't know, I just care about that stuff. So I'm always reading Pew, Lily, Gallup, Barna, whoever. And if you're a minister like me and you read that stuff all the time, and I don't expect that you would, it can be seriously discouraging. I mean, I don't have time to get into all the statistics, but they're brutal. And I have compassion. Like, I empathize with skeptics. Because they really hope for something real and true and good in religion. But their confidence gets bashed and trashed when they see all the pain caused by religion. And it doesn't match their hope, and they don't know what to do. And so them and us, we sometimes feel disconnected from God. The way we might feel disconnected from friends in a, in a big crowd at a ball game or a concert. Living in Nashville, Debbie and I are starting to go to a lot of concerts. And you know, you can, hey, you know, where's Debbie? And grabbing her hand, you know, before we go down the stairs or whatever, and those huge crowds, or I grew up in Orange County, California, so I've you know, been to Disneyland more times than I can count especially when I was young. So I have a lot of memories of toddlers, like two or three years old, standing in those huge crowds at Disneyland or Disney World, bawling their eyes out, disconnected from mom or dad, who may only be 10 or 12 feet away, but there could be 30 people between them, and a little kid can't see mom or dad. And this is how often us and our friends feel. And I just want you to know this morning that Jesus does not respond to those sorts of fear about the badness of religion or the pain. He doesn't respond with religious moralisms. Rather, Jesus comes to us, as we read in John this morning, as resurrection. As Tom Wright puts it, as a part of God's future, those perfections, think of the perfections of the book of Revelation, 
This is how Jesus comes to us, bursting into our present time, inviting us to live in him through the mess and grief of the world that we see constantly around us with hope and with new possibilities. So when we read, <laughs> Jesus is the resurrection and the life, it's not just a passage to be talked about at funerals. I mean, it's an appropriate place to talk about it. But we're meant to get hope for this life, right? We're, we're the body of which Jesus is the head and he is the resurrection and the life. Eternal life is not spatial, you know, S-P-A-T-I-A-L. It's not somewhere out there beyond the Milky Way. And eternal life is not chronological. It's not out there somewhere in time after you die. Eternal life is a qualitative term in the New Testament. It means a different sort of life, right? There's only one straightforward definition of eternal life in the New Testament. It's John 17, three. And this is eternal life, Jesus said, that you would know God and Christ, that you would have an experiential knowing of this new life that's available to us and that does day after day, moment after moment, if we desire it, Crucify our flesh. So as I got to the end of our readings and was thinking about this this week, my mind went to Mark 14, that, pa that passage where Jesus is in the garden at Gethsemane. And the message version is characteristically brilliant where it has Jesus saying to the disciples, stay alert, be in prayer so that you don't wander into temptation without even knowing you're in danger. There's a part of you that's eager ready for anything in God. But there's another part of us that's as lazy as an old dog sleeping by the fire. Characteristically brilliant, Peterson. And I sat at my desk and it came to my mind the great, this passage from the great litany. Lord, from all inordinate and sinful affections and from the deceits of the world, the flesh and the devil, Good Lord, deliver us. That ancient prayer has been prayed for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years for a reason. Because it's precisely this flesh that we all carry around us, in us, with us. This humanity that sometimes loses its reference in God. This lazy dog. It's what we bring before God this morning. Knowing that as Ezekiel said, while our hope seems gone... While we seem cut off, God will breathe into us and allow us to come to life again, to stand up on our feet, strong in the spirit. Maybe some of you can relate to the psalmist this morning. Out of the depths I cry to you for mercy. God, let your ears be attentive. Give me forgiveness so that we can with reverence serve you. I wait for you, Lord, and in your unfailing love, I put my hope. Or maybe some of us this morning feel a little dead in our faith, like Lazarus. Maybe our faith is shaken. But maybe you can hear Jesus say to you this morning, I am the resurrection and the life. Receive my life, which is your healing. So this morning, maybe we can say with Martha, yes, Lord, we believe that you are the Messiah. We believe that you have come into the world. You've come to this place of physicality to give us a new kind of life that's both eternal and spiritual. And so with Martha, we say, yes, yes, Lord, we want this life. 
We want it to flow within us. We want it to flow through us for the redemption and the healing of this community that surrounds us. Just before we move on, I'd like you to take a moment of quiet. If it feels good to you, you can bow your head, you can close your eyes, you can do whatever feels physically good to you. But maybe this morning you would like to bring to your mind the honest you. Your real affections, your real desires, the state of your will this morning. And wherever you find conflict and it feels like the world, the flesh, and the devil, maybe you just wanna say that to God. And hear him say to you, you are my child and I hear you and I will come to you not in judgment but in resurrection hope. Maybe this morning you think of loved ones who are fed up with church. They're just gone. Broken hearted. Could you lift them up this morning, name them before God, and ask God to be to them the resurrection and the life. And may this place, may this church, both as it's physically situated in this physical place, and as you exist in relationship in community, may this be a place where you find faith and growth and others find it as well.